You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff. Thank you for tuning in. Today's episode will feature live audio from an event held on May 1st, 2019, which is Law Day. The event is called Supply Chain Security is National Security and features Joyce Correll, the Assistant Director of the Supply Chain and Cyber Directorate at the National Counterintelligence and Security Center, Stephen Preston, a partner at Wilmer Hale and the Chair of the Defense, National Security, and Government Contracts Practice, and was moderated by Harvey Rishikoff, the Chair of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security's Advisory Committee. If you'd like to listen to the full audio of the event, including the audience Q&A at the end, please visit us online at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. If you'd like to come to one of our events, the next one will be June 13th, 2019, held at the University Club in Washington, D.C., with Andrea Gacki, the Director of the Office of Foreign Assets Control at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. Please visit us online, where we will post registration details as that becomes available. Please enjoy the discussion on supply chains and national security. Joyce, I'd like to have you sort of open up the bidding and give us a sense of what you're doing, what the administration's understanding of the supply chain issue is, and where you currently, your views of where we're headed. Okay, um, I'm not sure if I fall into the geek or the wonk or both categories. Um, so my name's Joyce Carell. I'm in um, ODNI in the National Counterintelligence and Security Center. I'm the Assistant Director for Supply Chain and Cyber Topics in that particular environment. Um, one of our responsibilities in NCSC is that we have um, uh, government-wide authorities for counterintelligence and security. So it's a little bit different than the authorities that the DNI has, which is just for the intelligence community. So I spend a lot of time working across the executive branch. Um, the, the, this issue of supply chain risk management is um, uh, hard to grapple with for a variety of reasons. It's bureaucratically complicated. It's not necessarily um, intellectually difficult to understand from a supply chain risk management perspective, from a government perspective, we're worried about the goods and the services that we procure and, and whether those are, are delivered to us um, without any extra functionality. Um, from a counterintelligence and security perspective, um, we're worried about an adversary using a company as a threat vector. We're not so much concerned about counterfeit items getting into our supply chain, although, although that is a, a, a definite concern, but we focus our priorities in, in the area of um, looking at the, the uh, foreign, foreign nation state actor, the, the foreign nation state threat actor, using a company as a threat vector. Um, probably about um, uh, two, two and a half years ago, um, the government started um, looking at the company Kaspersky Labs. And, and we realized that from a federal government perspective, this was a company whose goods and services we didn't want provided to the U.S. government. So we embarked upon a journey of many, many months uh, to sort through the authorities that the government has to try to address what we perceive to be as the risk posed by this company. So that the, the, key, the key risks in this particular environment with this particular firm was um, a, a technical concern um, the company um, produces antivirus technology, so in the cyber environment, that's a key technology that one uses to protect network systems. And um, that technology um, allows the, the um, company that provides you the service very intimate access to your network, and you end up in a um, relationship with this company where you pay them, you sign an end-user licensing agreement, and you say to the company, yes, you may come onto my system, and I give you permission to remove stuff. 
So, so the government doesn't want stuff removed from its networks all the time. Uh, we just want malware removed from our networks, not our, our data. Um, so in this particular context, the technology was of concern because that technology has intimate level, um, uh, intimate access to um, a, net a network system at the root level, basically. The other concern was that the data being removed from systems would go back to Moscow and to the, to the company's headquarters in Moscow. And the legal regime in the country and the authorities that, that are there allow for the security services to lean on companies and have them provide whatever data is requested back to the security services. So that was an unacceptable risk for the federal government and an unmitigatable risk. You know, you couldn't, um, it wasn't a technology that could be audited where you, you could, there were no checks and balances. So the government said, we, we need to figure out a way to, way to handle this, a way to remove this from our, our systems. Um, so we embarked upon a very, very long journey that required people trying to understand federal acquisition regulations, um, and understanding um, existing authorities, and eventually the Department of Homeland Security it used authorities they had um, under the um, Binding Operational Directive Authorities to take some action. Um, the action they took was to um, uh, instruct civilian agencies um, using that authority to remove this. This was perceived as a de facto debarment. And the tool that DHS had, the Binding Operational Directive, was never intended to be a de facto debarment. There was um, a lot of examination of due process. You know, what were the right steps that the government needed to go through, you know, working with a private sector firm to allow them a degree of due process, but respect the authority of the executive branch to address national security. So this played out through, through litigation. Um, as the government looked at that, in, in hindsight, we realized that we actually needed um, authorities for the entire government to take action, and we pursued um, the path to get legislation. So we started on this last year, uh, in the probably the late summertime, uh, with the Senate Homeland Security um, Committee. Um, the legislation, you know, went through all of the all, all of the mysteries of the Congress, and so it finally arrived on the president's desk, and he signed it on 21 December in the Secure Technology Act. The Secure Technology Act is sort of an umbrella umbrella statute that has um, a couple of extra authorities for Department of Homeland Security specific to DHS, and it also encompasses the Federal Acquisition Security Supply Chain Act. We're gonna to refer to it, though, as the Secure Technology Act because that's much more pronounceable than actually saying FASCSA. <laughs> so, so, so we actually, um, when, the, when the statute was signed, like many statutes, um, you know, there was a laydown of who the key agencies were, that needed to be part of this. There was an, a, a, um, a mandate to create a Federal Acquisition Security Council, and the council would then um, issue you know, regulations and policies and all of the types of things that that type of an organization does. So the chairmanship and the membership were identified, as well as some specific tasks for the government. There were some specific deadlines in the statute as well, sort of you know, you know 45 days from signature, you know, 180 days from signature. Um, because it was signed on um, four hours before the partial government shutdown, um, it, it didn't really get launched you know, on schedule you know, as, as was intended. So we actually had the first meeting of the Federal Acquisition Security Council yesterday. And um, um, as I'm sure many of you are intimately familiar, um, these organizations, these types of entities, these governmental bodies, it's, it's run by OMB, so it's run by the White House, uh, with you know senior senior folks from uh, different agencies, uh, these groups will spawn any number of working groups because that's how the executive branch works. 
Um, there is in the statute. Yes. We do have the press here, and I want to keep you promotable. So. Um, <laughs> you go for it. Oh, please. Yes. I, I have said this publicly before. Okay. Uh, this is this is well-known government fact, Harvey. I, maybe I learned it at the War College. I don't exactly. know. <laughs> oh, is this not attribution? That's okay. Um, so, so we're now embarking upon um, the, the the process of of moving out in this space and figuring out. Um, how agencies will move forward. An important aspect um, over the long haul for this particular statute um, is a requirement for all federal government agencies to stand up supply chain risk management programs. Um, many, many civilian agencies um, are, this is a new concept to them. They don't know um, where they're going, so they, they don't know even where to start. So there'll, there'll be, that'll be over the long haul that agencies begin um, digging into what this means for each specific agency. Um, there, there are responsibilities for key organizations, Department of Commerce, NIST, is supposed to promulgate standards. Um, the statute also provides authority or direction, I should say, um, to develop criteria for um, other entities to be excluded. So the criteria for an exclusion order. So this gets us to a very new concept in this space, which is really creating a blacklist and excluding companies from federal government, um, uh, federal government systems. Um, but there's, there's more detail in how, how that gets implemented. But an important aspect of, of this, when you develop criteria, when you, keep, when you keep lists, when you make lists, you have to have criteria for how some, somebody gets on a list. You also have to have criteria for how someone gets off a list. So how we, how we navigate the criteria, the criteria will need to be public. It will need to be publicly known, right? So, so the, the, the government will have to draft criteria and there will be a process of industry engagement industry consultation so that companies understand what, what these requirements really are. Um, the, with the due process piece of it, you know, if there's a decision for an exclusion order, there's a requirement for a notification to the vendor. So that there's, there's a, uh, an, an opportunity for dialogue you know, with the company. So this is a process that has a, a, a degree of transparency in it. There are also um, um, some uh, limitations to all, all of the transparency and that there are authorities for the intelligence community to protect you know, for the federal government, not just the intelligence community, to protect sensitive government information from, from disclosure, uh, from undue disclosure. So there's a, the judicial review process allows that. Great. So new ground. So thank you very much for setting the table. So Stephen, you've been watching this story unfold from a variety of perches, um, both public <coughs> and private now. And you've been there when we dealt with ZTE, dealt with Huawei, dealt with Kaspersky. So can you give us a sense of where you sit now, what your perspective is as to how you're thinking about the problem and how you approach it as an attorney with your clients? Right. Um, well, first, uh, thank you, Harvey and Holly, for uh, the opportunity to be here. And it's great to see so many former colleagues and old friends, two of whom both have a surname Baker, it seems. But uh, <laughs> any event, I'm happy to be here. And uh, this is certainly a timely topic. I will say, uh, by comparison to the uh, other two up here, my exposure to supply chain security issues uh, pales in comparison, uh, both in duration and depth. So I think my role is to be a man on the street uh, providing a uh, perspective on this. But uh, this is part of a constellation of issues that, uh, that we have been focusing on for some time. And I think it might be useful uh, as a further setting of the table to put uh, supply chain security in a larger perspective, to look at supply chain security, to look at the 
uh, efforts that Joyce has described to better manage supply chain risk uh, in the larger context of uh, recent policy and regulatory developments uh, aimed at protecting U.S. innovation, U.S. systems, U.S. information from China. Uh, and I'm tempted to say this is all about China, uh, although the Kaspersky Labs uh, legislation from a year ago is a good counterexample. But I think it's all about China almost. Um, and uh, certainly the, I think the political impetus uh, for a lot of this and a good deal of the national security policy impetus for it is rooted in, uh, in concerns about, uh, about China. And so, um, uh, I want to talk a little bit about that. Now, concerns about Chinese theft of U.S. Uh, intellectual property, Chinese access to uh, uh, important strategic technologies is not new. Uh, it, uh, it, it certainly has been escalating, I would say, over the last 10 to 12 years, chiefly among uh, national security professionals and the companies that are most directly affected uh, by it. But I think we've seen in the last two or three years, uh, not just in the current administration, but predating that, uh, concerns about China in this area uh, greatly intensify. And I would cite three factors leading to that, uh, among others, but three principal factors. Uh, one is China's stated ambition to dominate global markets in critical technologies, as reflected in Xi Jinping's Made in China 2025 program. Uh, second, uh, increasing awareness within our government of the apparent inadequacy of U.S. foreign investment, export control, and other regulatory regimes, and the apparent success of China in either exploiting deficiencies in those regimes uh, or otherwise circumventing uh, the uh, critical bite of those uh, regimes. And then third, I would cite the current political environment uh, in which the current administration has found in competition with China, an issue that resonates with the base. Uh, and we have on the Hill, Democrats and Republicans fighting it out to see who can be tougher on China. So our government has embarked on a broad and sustained campaign aimed at blocking China's access to advanced U.S. technologies and countering efforts to, to compromise sensitive U.S. information and defense systems. And the associated expansion in federal regulatory authority, I think, is quite striking. So what I want to do is just trot through that. Now, first and foremost, uh, particularly given the topic of our discussion today, uh, are the new supply chain security requirements. Uh, again, so, uh, supply chain risk management is not new, but there have been a number of new initiatives, among which Joyce mentioned. Uh, but uh, just within the last year, and we'll start with the release of the uh, Delivered Uncompromised Report and Initiative that uh, Harvey knows more about than all of us put together, uh, but a central tenet of which would be to establish security as a fourth pillar in the federal acquisition process uh, of equal weight with, uh, with uh, scheduled performance uh, and cost uh, in the acquisition process. Uh, there is the National Security, I'm sorry, the National Defense Authorization Act for the current fiscal year, uh, which made permanent a blacklisting authority by which uh, contractors can be excluded from consideration uh, for security purposes. Uh, the same uh, NDAA for fiscal year 2019 has new measures that prohibit federal agencies 
and recipients of federal funding from acquiring or using within larger systems information technology or vis vi uh, video surveillance services or equipment from specific named Chinese entities, including Huawei and ZTE. Another provision in that statute compels contractors to disclose to contracting agencies whether their source code has been previously made available for review by foreign governments. Foreign governments in the case of DOD specific uh, items uh, or by uh, selected foreign governments in the case of commercial items. Beyond these supply chain measures, we've seen modernization efforts directed towards the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, or CFIUS, the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act of 2018, signed in August, expands considerably the power of CFIUS, including to review corporate transactions involving critical infrastructure, critical technology, or troves of sensitive personal data of American citizens. And under that legislation, CFIUS has issued regulations implementing a pilot program directed towards critical technologies where uh, the uh, committee now has jurisdiction and mandates filings in an otherwise previously voluntary system uh, in circumstances in which there's foreign investment in a U.S. business in any of 27 enumerated industries uh, in which they uh, produce or develop critical technologies very broadly defined. Uh, and it applies regardless of whether that investment rises to the level of foreign control. In the same statute, U.S. export control reform, uh, including a charge to the Department of Commerce to identify, quote, emerging and foundational technologies uh, as targets for potential future export control regulation. Uh, and then you have the Commerce Department itself aggressively applying existing uh, uh, authorities by putting on the so-called entities list a number of leading Chinese technology firms uh, and, and the result of which uh, is U.S. companies cannot export to those, com to those companies uh, without uh, first getting an export license. I'll mention also enhanced cybersecurity and data protection requirements. Now uh, at DOD contractors under the NISPOM and under the DFARS uh, are required to have certain cybersecurity and data protection uh, measures in place uh, and are required to report uh, breaches or infractions. Uh, and the list goes on. I haven't mentioned trade sanctions against China uh, directed expressly in response to Chinese foreign ownership restrictions that are used to leverage uh, tech transfer and, uh, and the theft of IP. And I'll mention also then the intensified scrutiny of U.S. universities and research institutions who have cooperative uh, research agreements, grants, or other relationships with uh, the Chinese tech giant Huawei, uh, or who host Confucius Institutes on their campuses. So we're seeing an aggressive, multi-front response to China as an economic competitor and as a potential military adversary. I say it's all about China, almost. Uh, it obviously isn't entirely about China. Uh, I do think that is the principal motivation and the principal, uh, principally politically resonant target uh, of attention. But these changes, while they may be motivated principally by China, and may be directed principally at preserving uh, American military superiority, in fact, with few exceptions, they are drafted in any fashion to apply to foreign actors 
and sensitive or advanced American technologies uh, more generally. And given the more highly politicized uh, uh, nature of this, I think the prospect of, uh, of public scrutiny of government enforcement is heightened. And so our advice to clients is that these are uh, legal developments that, uh, that, that they are well advised to stay on top of in order to avoid missteps that could have substantial reputational or financial consequences. Perfect, Stephen. Thank you for laying out sort of that framework. And as a compliment to you, both Jim Lewis and Bob Metzger were taking extensive notes, which I really, really appreciate. <laughs> so that's the highest compliment you've received. You may want to send out a billing memo post this. Uh, um, the, I will. Excellent. I'll give you this. The, um, so in my world, we used to say years ago, are you a panda hugger or are you a dragon slayer? And I think we're moving towards a more dragon slayer footing. But on the, you mentioned the Deliver on Compromise report, and Bob Metzger is one of the co-authors who's here with me, who's one of the experts on DFARs. If you have any DFAR questions, we always defer to Bob on these issues. Uh, but I would say that the two things I want to highlight about the Deliver on Compromise report, and I'm ha there are extra copies if anyone is having trouble sleeping, I encourage you to <laughs> do it. Though so I will tell you, uh, I have just recently been informed, it's the most <coughs> downloaded report in the history of MITRE which makes you feel good until you see the other titles, which are like <laughs> you know, recombining DNA and chemicals for a better fusion in a uranium-enhanced enterprise. So the competition is not as stiff as I would have liked, but it is still nonetheless a fact. Um, Most of those downloads were in China. <laughs> we're very popular in the for with foreigners. Um, uh, but the two things I want to highlight, and I'll have um, you guys sort of address, is one of the things we've highlighted is that we think we need to create a, a national uh, uh, center, a NIST, uh, for uh, NS, a NISC, a National Supply Chain Initiative Center. And we want that to be placed under the authority of the National Counterintelligence Center. And we also wanted to do something that we created when we were doing National Counterintelligence Center with uh, John, is we wanted to have it quadruply hatted for authorities. So when we first set up the Insider Threat Center uh, and Enterprise, we dual hatted it with both the FBI, so they came with their Title 18 authority, but we also gave Title 50 <coughs> the Intelligence Authority. And that we thought was important for demonstrating for the insider threat how you would have both the intelligence aspect for gathering, but also an enforcement capacity with the Bureau. So what we're asking to be new with this center is we want to have it both Title 18, we have the Bureau because they get information. We want Title 10, which is part of the military. We want Title 50, I see, but we also want Title 40, which is DHS. And we want them all to come with their authorities. And then a criticism that we've had, and both of you can address it as a question is, we get, have a tendency to gather a lot of information when we wear the government hat, but giving the information back to the private sector is something that people have always been a little bit critical of, and I'm curious about how you guys both think about it when you sit. And then the second big issue we think that's going to move the needle in the space of supply chain is I, I like to say I have more independent analysis of my toaster and how it performs than any supply where that I purchase and recommend to the C-suite in my, in my different capacities. So we do not have an independent rating of 
of these products. And we have independent ratings for FICO scores, all your financial scores. We have independent rating for, when I used to do com uh, public commercial paper, Moody's. You know your AAA and your AA bonds. And that's what mature markets do. They are able to give advantage and ratings in the marketplace. So we're trying to stand up something in MITRE to help launch that. And we want it to be independent. It's a federally funded research cor corporation. It's a 501c3, it's not for profit. But we think this would have a big impact because when you are gonna, any one of us has to make a decision as to when you wanna buy the latest piece of application or software. It'd be very helpful if it was to have a security score rating. And we also wanna score the supply chain. So that includes the insider threat programs. So we'll be, we'll be looking at four variables. One is the software, one is the hardware, one is carbon units, which we know as people. And the fourth is the ISPs, because we all ride on the ISPs, what is their system. So we're, that's what we think will help move the needle. So I'm curious first, you, we've done a lot together, uh, Joyce, about the public-private sharing. We also, ABA has a book on the public-private partnerships that Susan Ginsburg has authored, which you also, I encourage you if you wanna get, get a perspective on this. But what about that public-private and how do you think the new mechanisms and institutions you're creating are gonna get that information both flowing in and flowing out? Okay, so um, from the information, so I was gonna give the shout out for the, actually, for the source book, because yeah. um, with, with Susan, John Cummings works in our organization now, so we have, we have local, local assistance in this space, and, and the source book, we're gonna be using that as we feed the Federal Acquisition Security Council. As I mentioned earlier, within the statute, there's, there's a, um, a, a requirement for uh, industry engagement. There's one mechanism right now, um, which was launched by the Department of Homeland Security. It was announced, um, I think last September, um, Secretary Nielsen was up in New York with uh, Vice President Pence, and they talked about how DHS is you know, transitioning to a national risk management um, uh, approach to critical infrastructure sectors. Uh, they also announced the, uh, the launch of an information communications technology supply chain risk management task force. Uh, the task force is comprised of um, representatives from 20 government organizations, uh, 20 firms representative of the information communications technology sector, the, uh, the IT sector, and 20 from the comms sector. So through that, that's one mechanism for, for discussion and dialogue with industry on some of these information sharing issues. Um, it's an interesting, in, interesting question. Um, from where I sit, many times what I hear from the private sector uh, with regard to information sharing is if we could only you know, there's a, a big assumption that we have this big pile of uh, intelligence gold that we're sitting on and hoarding, and, and that we're just um, uh, uh, look the other way and don't make eye contact when people ask about information sharing. Um, so so we, we're pressed repeatedly for access to that information, and you know, just if, if only we in industry knew what you knew. You know, so big assumption there. There's, there's, there's an assumption that we, we have a level of exquisite knowledge as if, um, you know, to use a Western analogy, um, you know, that, that as though we know exactly it's going down in the OK Corral at high noon, you know, at 20 paces with, um, you know, a, a uh, you know, five, five um, round derringer. Yeah, so that level of, of specificity when we're talking about the, the threat that, um, um, that, that you were describing, where it's a nation, a nation state like China using all levers of influence available to them, licit and illicit, um, it's um, a, a question about do we have an information to provide a warning? In, in which case, the warning is always, hey, heads up, China, you better be worried. 
um, do you understand what your third party risk is? That's, that tends to be the dialogue, not the, the just give me the specific thing tailored just for me as one of 500,000 companies in the US. So, so part of the question with industry, the conversation with industry is, hmm, if I have information that would be of utility to you, what would that information be? What would make a difference for you as you're evaluating your third party risk and you're, you're seeking to do business with a third party? What about that firm that you might know would cause you to say, no, I will not do business with you? Rather than, okay, I'll just do business with you really carefully. And um, a, a, an immediate response I often get is, well, if you have evidence of malfeasance, that's good enough for me. But the fact of the matter is that that's not necessarily true. You know, so, so some companies will, be in a, will, will commit some type of infraction, they'll be penalized, and they'll, they, they, you know, they'll clean up their act. So, so how one gauges trust and how one <coughs> understands their risk appetite I think is something that we're going to be learning, and I think scoring informs that risk appetite. Thank you. I have a whole new image of Bill Evanina as the director of the National Counterintelligence Center's Wyatt Earp. So um, <laughs> I think I'm going to get him a big Texas hat, and that may help him you know, move him along for his confirmation issue. Um, you, Stephen, this is a perfect issue of, you know, uh, we've gathered together general counsels. We've talked about the sharing of information on these cyber issues. We've gotten a little pushback saying there's a concern that only DHS can give immunity, that uh, they're fearful of potential liability if they overshare. How do you approach it now that you're on the other side of the fence with your clients and how you think about that issue? Sure. Uh, so first let me just say about um, deliver and compromise, and I mentioned this earlier, I, we've all seen countless reports and white papers that have been generated uh, for good reasons and with good people, and almost all of them end up on a shelf, and that's about where they end up. Uh, that's their highest and best use. This report, I think, uh, it's it really um, having an impact, and a great credit to you, Harvey, and, and Bob, uh, and your co-authors as well, so hats off to you on, on that. I, I think, um, uh, I think you've put your finger on one of the persistent problems uh, that we've experienced uh, in the post 9-11 effort to break down walls and increase information sharing. And uh, the fact of the matter is, it, there's been a systematic failure to put in place, I think, the structures, the incentives, the immunities or protections that are needed for private parties to share with the government and with each other and vice versa. I think your second recommendation and setting up an NCTC-like organization that could be something of a clearinghouse uh, is, uh, is inspired and, uh, and a useful step in that direction. But I think if we just leave uh, the private sector and the various agencies with their various jurisdictions including the Justice Department and antitrust enforcement to sort of work it out organically, it's not, it's not happening. Mm -hmm. Or at least it's not happening on a, on a wide scale basis. And mm -hmm. I think there are industry sectors, financial services being one, where I think they've broken the code. Mm -hmm. But it's not general practice in industry. Great.
we're going to end the audio for that event here. To listen to the full audio recording, including the audience Q&A, please visit us online at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. You can find more articles and links to Black Letter Law in the notes to this podcast and on that site. You can also drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org or on Twitter at ABA NatSec. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on National Security Law Today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.